The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I am Tony Bernhard, and this is the book I wrote, How to Be Sick. I like to show the back because it's so beautiful. Wisdom did a beautiful job on this book. Um, I had two places that I was determined to go when the book was published on September 1st. And one of them was to Sylvia Borstein's Wednesday morning class at Spirit Rock. Sylvia wrote the foreword. And I've done that. I couldn't do any of these things without my husband, who is also named Tony and is in the back there. And I know a lot of you here know him. So I did go to Sylvia's class, and we had a lovely conversation about the book in front of the group. And the other place I wanted to come was to Gil's Sangha. I've actually not been to this building. I was to St. Mark's many times through um, events at the Saudi Center. And um, Gil has just been a very important person and teacher to me along the Dharma path. And so this was the other place I wanted to come, and I really appreciate that he invited me. I was thinking in the car on the way here that I hadn't seen him for over 10 years, August of 2000, because uh, Tony and I were regulars at this, uh, the Vajrapani retreat that was held um, every August in the Santa Cruz Mountains, a spirit rock retreat, but held at Vajrapani. And so the last one I was at was August 2000, because in August 2001, I was sick. So um, it was wonderful to see Gil today. Um, I'm in front of you uh, through the grace of a combination of Eastern and Western treatments that have made me more functional uh, any of you who have read the book are probably wondering, uh, why, why isn't she in bed? Um, they've made me more functional, if not always less sick, um, but more functional during the day, not so much at night. Um, and that's what has enabled me to come today. And then there's that um, magic ingredient, adrenaline, for... <laughs> for which there will be payback <laughs> later, but uh, that's okay, because I want to be here. Um, oh, you might be thinking, she doesn't look sick. She looks like everybody else here. And it's uh, one of the difficulties that people who are chronically ill or have chronic conditions, I kind of include that, when I say chronically ill, because sometimes um, someone may have health problems that aren't necessarily called an illness. Uh, one of the difficulties we face is that many of us don't look sick, and so it can be very hard for others to understand our limitations. But I recently 
uh, read on the internet, so it must be true, <laughs> that there are 90 million people in this country who suffer from um, physical illness, chronic physical illness. So I'm pretty sure as I look out in this room that I'm uh, looking at other people who share some of the difficulties that I share and um, that we have a lot in common. So I thought I would start by telling you how I got sick and what might be wrong with me, talking a little bit about the world of the chronically ill and then about the book. Uh, and then hopefully, uh, oh, maybe you'll have some questions and then um, I guess that I can go out there and sign books too at the end. So um, the story of this unexpected turn in my life uh, begins in 2001. In late uh, May of that year, I thought I had the next 15 or to 20 years of my life mapped out. Um, but we all know about the universal law of impermanence and its corollary uncertainty. Uh, I was back in the classroom at UC Davis School of Law after having spent six years as its dean of students. And so any of you in administration know how wonderful it is to be back in the classroom. <laughs> I was very happy to be there. I had a newborn granddaughter in Los Angeles um, who in January will now be 10, but I plan to spend a lot of time visiting down there. And I plan to continue going on meditation retreats, which I had been doing for 10 years, roughly 10 years, starting in 1992 was the first trip I made to Spirit Rock. Uh, so mostly at Spirit Rock, but I had done um, retreats in some other places too. So that was kind of my life plan. And then suddenly everything changed. And that's chapter one of the book, <laughs> Getting Sick. And it uh, takes place in the city of Paris because that's where Tony and I had gone on a really special trip because we're not world travelers. But I got sick there. And... Uh, I have yet to recover. So, uh, what's wrong with me? <laughs> I've done several radio interviews and uh, th uh, thinking at first that I would just get to talk about Buddhism, but uh, that's, this is what, uh, maybe this group not so much, but uh, this is what other people want to know. What's wrong with you? You got sick and you didn't recover, what is that about? Um, many years ago I had a terrible, I used to have a, a lot of back problems. It's one thing that uh, being in bed all day will cure, <laughs> will fix right up. Uh, but I had recurring back trouble and I remember an orthopedist looking me in the eye and saying, you know, backs are at the limit of our medical knowledge. And uh, I would make that statement about what's wrong with me. It really is at the limit of our medical knowledge. Some doctors call it chronic fatigue syndrome. But experts in that field, and I've seen or consulted with almost every one of them, including a doctor at Stanford, 
um, they no longer think chronic fatigue syndrome is one illness, but uh, maybe uh, four, four to five, three to four discrete illnesses, uh, and they've begun to isolate some of them. And so when you say that a person has chronic fatigue syndrome, it doesn't uh, mean you know what's wrong with them. Uh, it's a mysterious illness, and very little money is put into research. There's more money spent each year on hay fever research. And in fact, money that was um, targeted, that was given to the CDC for research, was diverted for other purposes. And uh, that's one of the problems, why there hasn't been much progress made. And uh, it's uh, partly due to this ridiculous name, chronic fatigue syndrome. In most countries around the world, there is a different name for it, a more complicated name. Um, uh, and this is a name the CDC settled on after rejecting such names as uh, uh, post-viral syndrome. They settled on this name in the 1980s. Uh, people with a CFS diagnosis aren't just fatigued. They're sick. Everybody sick or healthy gets fatigued at times, but my fatigue is a sickly fatigue. So um, except for the fever, imagine how you feel when you have the flu, the, your, the aching body, mild to severe headache, kind of a di dizziness, uh, cognitive struggles, and the need to lie down every few hours. Uh, that's how I feel and have felt for nine and a half years. It's how I feel right now. Um, as I talk to you. So do we have any clues? Well, I mentioned these discrete subsets of CFS, and at some future date, those subsets uh, will be given names. This has happened with other illnesses. I think multiple sclerosis is one, where for many years it was a mysterious illness without a name, and now it has a name. They'll be given names, and the phrase chronic fatigue syndrome will become obsolete. Um, I appear to fit under two possible uh, subsets. The first is called chronic immune system activation, which is a condition that keeps the body in a perpetual state of what's called the sickness response. Uh, it's that yucky feeling that all of you have when you're sick. And it's a good sign because it means your body is producing fighting cells. And really that feeling of sickness that I described, the aching, the fatigue, uh, is uh, a side effect of that fight that the immune system is putting up. And uh, I remember the day that an infectious disease doctor, Tony and I, were in the room and he went over to the light switch and he said, it's as if your immune system went on in Paris, like a good immune system should, but it never went off. And so it keeps you in this perpetual state of um, sickness response. It's like we need a reset button, but we don't, <laughs> we don't have one. And the other possibility based on um, my blood work is that this acute virus I got in Paris caused 
a reactivation of one or more childhood um, herpes viruses that lay dormant in healthy adults, the way chickenpox comes back as shingles. Um, your body evidently never gets rid of herpes viruses. And for me, the culprit appears to be childhood roseola, this innocuous rash that little babies get. It's a herpes virus. And um, in the adult population is called HHV6. Uh, so that's another possibility. And if that's going on, then I'm in this, con I'm in this state of a low-grade war against this virus, again, this sickness response. So those are the two best possibilities, but uh, I want to make this account complete. Um, and so I'm going to add a couple studies that have come out in the last 12 months that have shown a clear connection between people with a chronic fatigue syndrome diagnosis and a family of uh, leukemia-related retroviruses. And so uh, there was one study in the Journal of Science and now one that was just released by the National Institutes of Health and the FDA and Harvard Medical School that confirmed uh, wasn't, they didn't find the exact same virus but the same family. And I actually have been tested for the virus that was in the first study and in the initial testing was negative, which is you know, it's one of those, oh, good, oh, bad, oh, good, oh, bad. Overall, I'm glad. But um, we don't know about the other viruses. And so we're, you know, we're back to what I started with, which is what's wrong with me? It's at the limit of our medical knowledge, our current medical knowledge. So let me say something about life as a chronically ill person. Um, as the months went by and I didn't recover, I felt as if I'd entered this parallel universe that I didn't know existed. And I mentioned this, but one reason that um, I didn't know it existed is that it's largely invisible. Many of us look fine, even those with life-threatening uh, illnesses or conditions uh, may not look sick to others. And I should qualify that because the people who are with us all the time, they see it. They see those subtle changes in our demeanor when we are at the end of what energy we have. Uh, so my husband sees it. Um, my daughter-in-law sees it because she comes from Berkeley once a week to see me with my younger granddaughter. Um, but um, not too many people see that. Um, so uh, I'm pretty well versed in the kinds of experiences we share because one thing that is, I think, fortunate for those of us who are ill in this period of time is that we have the Internet and uh, so we are a bit less isolated. And I have met many people not who necessarily have the same di diagnosis I do, but who are housebound with chronic illness. And um, we share a lot. 
And as I said, I may be talking to some people in this room who will um, relate to what I'm talking about. For one thing, we often feel that it's our fault that we got sick. And I felt that way for the first two to three years of the illness. Uh, As if it's a personal failing on our part. Um... I was helped with, by my wonderful husband who assured me it was not and by Sylvia Borston who was also wonderfully supportive during that time and never failed to say this is not about, this is not your fault. Um, you know, we live in a culture that worships at the altar of wellness and it's okay, it's okay to get sick but then you're supposed to get better. And it's not just that everybody expected that of me. My colleagues at the law school certainly did. Um, But I expected it of myself. And so uh, every night I would go to sleep and just assume I, I would wake up being that same person I was when we got on the plane to Paris, Um, even though for weeks and then months and then years it was not the case. So it took me three to four years to stop blaming myself for what had happened. And uh, I think one of the reasons for that we blame ourselves is that we feel we've let our family and friends down. In the early years, I used to sob to Tony that I had ruined his life because what's happened to me has affected him as much as it's affected me. And it affected my friends too, many of whom have, as um, um, one person called it online, many of whom have gone missing. Um, And I talk a lot about that in the book, coming to terms with that, being okay with that. Um, And I am okay with it. And then there's having to adjust to a life of relative social isolation. I was a person, it's pretty strange sitting here talking to all of you, because I rarely talk to more than one or two people at a time, and then maybe for 20 minutes or so, maybe a little longer since I've been doing better during the day. But uh, I said I got sick in May. Well, in, in early May, I was talking to 90 people at a time in a law school class. And I had students, I was, lived a very full and uh, uh, life rich with social interactions. And suddenly it was me, the bed, <laughs> my elderly dog, and uh, Tony when he got off work, pretty much. So that's a big adjustment. And um, we also get frustrated by the lack of understanding in the general public and often the medical community about the nature of chronic illness. I uh, did a, a radio show for a local NPR station in Sacramento. I'm hoping to get that national bite, but I like doing radio shows because I sit on my bed. They even want you to use a landline. 
so I'm on the bed and <laughs> so I did a show for NPR's Insight out of Sacramento and a lovely host Jeffrey Callison and he gave my website and someone must have gone um, to the website got my email address and uh, sent me an email saying that he didn't want his tax dollars going to support an amotivational slacker. <laughs> what a phrase. <laughs> amotivational slacker. And you know, there's actually this great place in the book where I, um, I can call it great because it's not my writing. It's a quotation from Achan Cha about handling other people's comments where he says, if you don't stand up in the line of fire, you don't get shot. Um, but despite, and this happened recently, and it stung. It doesn't sting now. It stung for a while, and then I worked it through and um, uh, thought about uh, how unhappy this person must be to have written something like that to me after... Uh, so, but that's just an example of this feeling of being misunderstood. And people with chronic, who are in chronic pain, and there are, mil- there are a lot of people in chronic pain. I'm very grateful that I'm not one of them. They often get labeled as drug seekers. If they happen to show up at the ER at a time when, say it's after hours or on the weekend, when the staff can't get a hold of their regular doctor who can vouch for them. And then they're denied much needed pain medication. So um, there is a lack of understanding both in the general community and in the medical community. Um, That is something that we share And finally, my internet wanderings tell me that many of us share the dilemma. It's going to maybe sound petty at first, but it's a dilemma of how to present when we go out into the world. How much should I have spruced up today? I did curl my hair (laughs) and put on a nice shirt. But makeup, lipstick, you know, if you... Uh, there's this tendency, I don't get out very much, so this is really special to me. If you know, make yourself look too good, then people are thinking, well, she can't, what's she doing writing a book called How to Be Sick? You know? But if I just kind of schlepped out of my house, you know, in the way, if I just dressed the way I felt, then you know, I'm not really doing what I can to lift my own mood. So um, it's a problem, and it's a problem for a lot of people, not so much me because we don't have an extended family, but when they go to family gatherings where they want to look good, but if they look too good, people don't get that they are going to need to nap or that they can't participate in all the activities. And um, it's very, very difficult. Uh, caretakers face their own set of stressors. I'm sure I'm talking to some uh, caregivers um, out there. The frustration of not being able to make your loved one better, of being suddenly thrown into the role of patient advocate. 
never occurred to us that Tony could go into the examining room with me. Well, now he never doesn't go. And he, uh, and I think I get better care for it. But he had no training for this role. Some hospitals have professional patient advocates, but often it's the caregiver who takes that role and then also takes over the role of handling most of the household tasks um, and of seeing their loved one. It may not be a partner or spouse. It may be your parent, your child, a sibling, a friend. Seeing them at their very worst. Uh, what you see now is not what Tony will get tonight. Um, that's pretty much for his eyes only. Um, my children have seen it a, a, once in a while, but I, kind of, I hide it from them too. I retire to the bedroom. Um, and then for caregivers, there's this sudden isolation as a result of losing your partner out in the world. And I think this last has been very hard on Tony. If you think about those of you who are lucky enough to share your world with someone, you know, coming home from an event, the wonderful post-mortem in the car. Oh, did you see how much he drank? And <laughs> she wouldn't stop talking. And, oh, yeah, but that lovely couple, maybe we could have them for dinner. That kind of sharing we don't have. When Tony goes out, he goes out, for the most part, alone. And when he goes to visit friends of ours, old friends, we have some in the East Coast and some dear friends in Phoenix, he goes alone. Uh, we used to come together, as I mentioned, to St. Mark's. I, I guess the Saudi Center meets here now? Yes. The events are here? Well, when we used to go to St. Mark's um, for daylongs, but now, uh, well, for the first for, for the first um, maybe six or seven years of my illness, Tony kept up, has, has kept up his relationship with all of, with this sangha. Uh, he drove alone. Now there are a couple of people from Sacramento area, Davis, that he sometimes carpools with. But even that's not the same as the two of us together. So it's hard. Um, writing this book has helped me tremendously because uh, it's taught me that no matter how sick I feel, there are some tools and practices that can help me find a measure of peace despite this uh, surprising uh, turn in my life. So I want to say a little bit about how the writing of the book came about and um, what's in it. Then I so get to talk a little Buddhism, and then I'll read an excerpt. Um, before I'd been, I got sick, I mentioned I'd been a practicing Buddhist for 10 years. And in 1996, I was fortunate to attend one of the last retreats led by the late Ayakema, a Buddhist nun who, as a young girl, escaped Nazi Germany with her Jewish parents. And at this retreat, she told us several times that thoughts arise, but for the most part are arbitrary and not reliable. She liked to say in her stern German tone, 
Most of them are just rubbish. <laughs> but we believe them anyway. And I, and I took those words to heart. You did not ignore easily Ayakema's pronouncements. And before getting sick, had become quite adept at watching thoughts arise and pass without believing them. Actually, I think one uh, retreat at Vajrapani, uh, Gil made a comment that one of the... I hope I get this right. Well, he's not here, so if I don't get it right... <laughs> that I think as a teenager, his father had made a comment to him that um, he didn't have to believe his thoughts. And that he now realized what a, a wise statement that was. Did I get that right, Tony? Do you remember that? Roughly, okay. So... Um, I uh, was, uh, that was one of the main uh, principal parts of my practice, but put me in the sick bed (laughs) all day long. And my thoughts were not pretty, and they seemed like anything but, they were anything but rubbish in my mind, and I believed every one of them. I've ruined Tony's life. And I can think, and now I think, I thought, but I did. I thought I had ruined his life. I thought I would never do anything useful again. I thought my granddaughter, the one who's going to turn 10, wouldn't love me because I can't see her very often. I couldn't be this, the fantasy I had of uh, the grandmother I thought I'd be. And so, despite these years of Buddhist practice, I fell into a state of denial and anger and um, self-blame and sometimes even despair. I have to say I felt like a failed failed Buddhist. But uh, the Dharma was deep down in my heart because slowly but surely the practices that I'd learned before I got sick uh, found their way back into my life. And uh, one day I reached for my laptop, which I call my bed top, and just move it over from a little stool I have it on, onto the bed, and I opened a document and I wrote, How to Be Sick. Uh, The title did come first, which I think is unusual, and, uh, you know, I looked at it for a while thinking about the Buddhist practices and, and how I might help people. And I, I, honestly, I thought, well, it's a great idea. It's too, too bad I'm too sick to write it. And I hit save, closed it, and put it away. But at that point, the thinking process had started and I started taking notes on a pad of paper and... Uh, Eventually, of course, I did write the book. I wrote it on the bed with my laptop and the uh, notes. Um, From memory of Dharma talks teachers had given and books I'd read, um, I find it difficult to read, so I didn't do any new research for the book, with the exception of reading Byron Katie's book, Some of you may know of her. She's not a Buddhist, but someone gave me her book, and I did read that. Um, I think of the Buddha, 
the way the Dalai Lama does, as a great psychologist. He understood that everyone's life has its mixture of joy and suffering. And he concentrated on suffering because it's a truth about life that we tend to ignore or turn away from. And I know all of you, but maybe... um, there, I think there may be some people, I don't know if they got here, but there were some people from a chronic fatigue syndrome group in um, perhaps Mountain View said they were, hi, we're going to try to come. Oh, how wonderful. Uh, so this, the uh, Pali word, that was the word that the Buddhist teachings, the language, sorry, that the Buddhist teachings was written down in. Um, the Pali word for this, for this is dukkha. D-U-K-K-H-A, which I know many of you do know. And uh, suffering is not really, we use the term suffering, but it's too narrow a definition. Dukkha really means dissatisfaction with the circumstances of your life. And in the First Noble Truth, the Buddha simply stated that despite our best efforts to avoid it, everyone has their share of dukkha both physical and mental, meaning that we're all dissatisfied in some way with the circumstances of our life. Um, To quote the latest celebrity Buddhist, you can't always get what you want. (laughs) Uh, I did see that on the internet a couple weeks ago. Mick Jagger has come around. (laughs) So... Um, For one thing, we're in bodies, and bodies get injured and sick and old despite the barrage of advertising claims to the contrary. Uh, This dissatisfaction, this dukkha for me has included this illness. For you, it may be difficulties at work, um, strained personal relationships, the dog barking next door when you're trying to meditate, can't find your car keys, There's a range, but it's there. Um, And so we're all dissatisfied in some way with the circumstances of our life, unless, I suppose, unless we're enlightened. And um, that's my own, I don't see why I shouldn't have one. I have my own personal definition of enlightenment. Now, maybe it is a good thing that Gil isn't here. <laughs> um, my definition is not being dissatisfied with the circumstances of my life. So imagine for a moment not being dissatisfied in any way with how your life is going. Opening to the unpleasant stuff, just giving up all that longing for it to be different than it is. All that desire, just drop it. For me, it's a tremendous relief. Now, those wants, don't wants, which is my Uh, the word I use for tana or desire, those wants, don't wants are almost immediately going to jump back in to our minds. But it's 
For me, it's a taste of freedom. And it's a taste that inspires me to keep working at it. And that takes me to the book because the practices in the book are designed to make this, our suffering, this dukkha. It's, the practices are designed for us not to make it worse by craving for things over which we have no control to be different. I cannot will myself to wake up well in body. <laughs> I don't seem to have control over that. Um, and that's the second noble truth, that the origin of dukkha is this constant craving for our life to be other than it is. And I, I think sometimes this is why uh, some teachers use the word anguish instead of suffering. I know Stephen Batchelor does for dukkha. Because anguish is associated with the mind, not the body. And this is an important distinction that the Buddha made when he said in the Third Noble Truth that there can be an end to this dukkha. He was talking about uh, suffering in the mind. The Buddha himself suffered from great bodily pain at times. But he showed us that we, did, that we don't need to add mental suffering or this mental anguish to the bodily suffering. The bottom line is that we've got the life we've got, we are given with its unique configuration of joy and suffering. We can't always get rid of the bodily suffering, whether it's aches or pains, whatever it is but we need not add mental suffering to it. And that's the heart of the book, learning to work with painful mental states to loosen what I think of as their tight-fisted grip on us. And when I think of painful mental states, I divide them. And you know, when you make these divisions, they're arbitrary to some extent, but it's helpful to me anyway. Painful mental states into... um, Stressful thoughts and painful emotions. So thoughts and emotions. Um, As for stressful thoughts, the book contains several practices, some Buddhist, some not, that specifically help us question the validity of these thoughts that we spin about our lives. I'm not just talking about a single thought, but then how we spin them out. Um, into stories about our future that usually have very little basis in fact, but we believe them. And we think their truthfulness is set in stone, and as a result, we suffer. And you don't have to be sick to benefit from a practice that will help you question the, the stories that you spin about your life. Uh, for me, there, you know, I'll never do anything useful again. I'll never. Uh, uh, nobody. Uh, the, <laughs> I looked down and saw. I, I could have listed a lot, but here's one. No one but Tony cares that I'm sick. I had that one going for a long time. Um, and I know you have all of yours. Um, nothing necessarily to do with illness. Um, and then we convince ourselves that this is true. No one but Tony cares that I'm sick. 
And well, that just adds mental suffering to my already suffering body. Um, and I've been helped tremendously here by Byron Katie, the woman that I mentioned. She has a simple technique um, that teaches you to question the validity of these thoughts because, as Ayakema said, they, most of them really are just rubbish. Um, at least mine are. And there's a chapter in the book devoted to her work that explains this technique. And I actually got the stamp of approval from her husband, Stephen Mitchell, so I feel <laughs> that I have correctly... Um, explained it and showed you how to use it. Um, And then I've also been helped by Zen teachings, uh, such as um, the wonderful uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's practice called, um, I think you call it a gatha, or a mindfulness practice, am I sure? I like to go through the day asking that question, am I sure that doctor doesn't really care about me. You know, I'm not. Maybe he was so overbooked today that he had he just had 10 minutes and 10 minutes and that was it. Maybe he's not feeling that well himself today. Am I sure this particular friend doesn't care about me anymore? I don't know. Maybe she has problems of her own. Maybe I ought to call her or send her an email and find out myself. So this, am I sure? I, I use it all the time. I use it when what's going on politically <laughs> has me stressed. Um, the wonderful Korean Zen master who came over from Korea and started this... Um, Providence, Rhode Island, Master Sung San, uh, has a, a practice that's really the same but with different words, don't know mind. He always said, keep a don't know mind. And keeping a don't know mind is something that I have found very liberating. So um, that's helped me a lot with uh, the thoughts. And I, this is all stuff that's in, in the book Uh, where I I give you practices and then talk about how I've used them so that you can apply them to your life. As for painful emotions, um, there are also uh, many things we can do. One thing is the wonderful practice we Buddhists call mindfulness. And I'm not necessarily talking about informal meditation practice. Mindfulness was this contribution that the Buddha made to spiritual practice or just um, everyday life uh, of being aware in the moment, whether in or out of meditation. And when, if you can bring um, painful emotion, such as anger or frusta- frustration, into awareness, because one of the problems is Often, we just don't even realize why we're feeling so awful mentally. Oh, I'm really frustrated at what just happened. When we bring them into awareness, we can see them for what they really are. And impermanent 
is one of those characteristics, thank goodness. So painful emotions come, they arise, but they change, they go. And so we can see them for what they are, impermanent. And also not inherently a fixed part of who we are. I'm not just frustration. It's a mind state that arises and passes. So mindfulness is a wonderful practice to help with painful emotions. And then, of course, we have the Brahma-viharas, these four supreme emotions, as they're sometimes called. There are so many different translations for Brahma-vihara. And these are um, loving-kindness, compassion, joy in the joy of others, and equanimity that are mind states that when we cultivate, when we consciously cultivate them, they uh, reduce the painful emotions. They replace them sometimes, but certainly uh, help to alleviate them. Um, And so uh, I want to share with you part of an email I received from uh, a woman who wrote to me about one of the simple compassion practices in the book, um, which is uh, where I suggest that you find a phrase in which you can speak to your body compassionately. And uh, the phrase I have is, uh, my sweet body working so hard to support me. That's something I never would have said the first few years I was sick. I was so caught up in self-blame and in this fight, fight to get better. And what's you know. So that's a phrase that I use all the time, especially when I'm having trouble sleeping. And uh, a woman wrote to me and sent me an email and said about that phrase, I realized that I still hadn't forgiven myself for getting ill and how much I hated my body for failing me. You made me see that it's not failing me. It's working as hard as it can to save me and make things all right for me. It's the biggest relief I've felt in years. So you can see the effect of compassion, how it can counter um, negative, painful emotions. Um, As for equanimity, some Buddhist scholars equate it with enlightenment, saying that if we can be calmly present with both our pleasant and unpleasant experience, riding the waves of the ups and downs, just a kind of steadiness without this constant craving for things to be other than they are, we'll know complete peace. And then, as the Thai forest monk Achan Cha liked to say, our troubles with the world will have come to an end. I'm a work in progress on that score, but um, I like the idea. The Buddha was a practical-minded guy. He was talking about how we live day to day. And uh, I'll just close with another uh, statement that Ayakema uh, made to us several times during this retreat. She's like to say, Buddhism is nothing more than an adult education class. (laughs) 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 
Um, well, I seem to have gone a bit long, and so I think I've given you enough of a sense of the book. Unless people really want me to, I thought maybe instead of reading an excerpt, I could see if people have questions. Because I always in my mind, I, I, I had, oh, this is going to take 30 minutes. But see, here we are, it's 10 after 12. So why don't I see if people have questions and then um, I can go out there too and meet people individually. So, yeah, hi. Hello, and thank you very much. It's uh, very moving. Thank I don't know anything about um, chronic fatigue, really. And I would like to know what, what you said you got sick in Paris. What did that mean? What, what kind of sick? Yeah. Um, the second day we were there, um, I felt flu-like symptoms, but I thought it might just be jet lag. So I kind of ignored it because it had that feeling of jet lag and I have that right now. Think of the worst jet lag you get where you're wired but horribly um, kind of a heart-pounding fatigue. So I thought it was jet lag and then the next day um, I, Tony and I realized that I was sick. But it appeared to just be an ordinary flu. And I eventually did see a doctor in Paris. And that's what she thought. She wrote down on the form, grip. How would you pronounce that in French? <laughs> Which I knew from Guys and Dolls <laughs> was the flu. So um, that's why I think, we're not sure, but we think that I just did have an ordinary flu. But it was something. That, but it was my body's response. And we don't know why. It was the response to that flu. So I don't believe, but I could be wrong, but I don't believe that what is wrong with me now is the same thing that was wrong with me in Paris. I, don't, I had in Paris horrible sore throat and cough and fever, uh, just a different kind of sickness. Yeah. Hi, yeah. Right there. Hi, Jenny. Thank you. Um, I was diagnosed 18 years ago with chronic fatigue syndrome, and it's been quite a journey. Yeah. Okay, can you hear me now? Yeah. I get really Say that again. For, speaking. Say that. I was, a, I was a communications major, but I, I still no. was I publicly no. speaking, and when it comes to this, I've had chronic fatigue syndrome for 18 years. Yeah. So to be present here and among everyone and to hear you and your journey, it's incredibly emotional. Oh, so I'm trying to stay a little bit up here. Yeah. Um, yoga for me and meditation on and off for all of those years has been the one vehicle that has moved me through mm-hmm. um, a lot. And I wanted to ask you about your personal meditation practice. I find in when I first started studying with some Buddhists in L.A. and mindfulness practice, I, for me personally, need a mantra or focus on two words, something very simple, because I will fade out or want to fall asleep, or cognitively it's a challenge. So I wanted to ask you maybe something you could share with me about your personal meditation practice. Well, it's a really good question, because um, at the time that I got sick, I had this 10-year disciplined, twice-a-day meditation practice, 45 minutes each time, And that included both the days my children got married. 
<laughs> I'm looking at John because he was the best man at my son's wedding. It was in San Diego, but everybody knew they were going to have to make room for the mother of the groom to meditate twice. <laughs> it was a family joke that nothing stopped me from meditating twice a day. And then I got sick and I was not able to meditate. And I think this is one of the reasons that I felt like a failed Buddhist. <laughs> I found the physical sensations of the illness too difficult in my meditation practice. But looking back on it, I think that I was at a disadvantage. This is completely personal, okay? It doesn't mean anyone else's journey would be like this. I think I was at a disadvantage from my experience because I was into um, concentration practices and uh, these sort of uh, sublime states. And um, damn, my sick body interfered with that, right? I think that people, and I've read on the web that many people when they become chronically ill find that what has helped them the most, and many people with chronic, of chronic fatigue syndrome diagnosis, what has helped them the most is meditation practice. And I think perhaps it's because they're starting and so the bodily discomfort is just as it should be part of your meditation. It's just what you're mindful of. But I had difficulty with that, and I'm just now getting back into practice, that kind of formal practice. One of the things I suggest in the book to people about, is that the book does not teach formal meditation practice, because the book is about practices I was using when I wrote it a couple years ago. I've, I finished it a year and a half ago, I think. Um, I wasn't doing a formal practice, but I encourage people to look into it. And one of the things I suggest is to find guided meditation for exactly the reason you mentioned. You say you find using a mantra helpful. And I hadn't thought of that, or I would have put it in here. I mentioned trying guided meditation because it will give your mind something to do. Listen to a voice. Um, so that you don't get too um, stuck on aversion to what's happening in your body. So I'm just, I'm new at formal meditation. I've been doing it lying on the bed just the last six months, starting again from scratch. Yeah. Thank you, Tony, so much. Um, 27 years with chronic fatigue. What I'm wondering about is how do you separate depression and grieving from normal states? Well, I, I guess I'd have to talk about them separately. Depression, and, and I'm not an expert on this, so I, I, don't, um, I might need someone else to help me here. Um, first of all, I should say that studies have shown that 
uh, depression and chronic fatigue syndrome are connected only in that sometimes people with a chronic fatigue syndrome diagnosis, as, as is the case with other people with chronic illness, become depressed. Um, but I mention that because there are many people with this diagnosis who are told, well, you're not sick, you're depressed. And that is not the case. So how do I say... Well, for me, um, depression would be the blues that hangs around too long. <laughs> and, and I say that because, um, as I said, um, emotional states, which for me include feeling blue, I can feel blue, um, feeling down, lots of expressions for it. They come, they hang around a day, couple days, but they pass. If I got the blues and after a couple weeks there was just no movement, I would then begin to wonder if depression hadn't set in. So for me, um, uh, depression is different from a painful emotional state that is subject to arising and passing. And um, grief, I, I think I would say the same thing, that at the point that, that grief becomes your predominant mental state and there's no movement there, then that is a kind of depression, a grief-driven depression. Could anybody give a better answer than that? Because I'm not, I'm not a therapist. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, as a psychologist, can I just say that what you said is exactly correct, okay. and I applaud it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So, um, I teach postgraduate doctors and nurses, and I'm just wondering, um, what, what would you like them to know? Well, I would, I would ask them to be good listeners. Uh, someone gave us a book on um, how doctors, their minds operate. And evidently within the first, it was either 30 seconds or a minute, other people must know this book, after they see you, they've made their decision. And um, so uh, not every illness... Okay, so I would tell them to be good listeners and I would tell them to, to be okay with having a patient they can't fix. Okay? And I'm saying that because I have a doctor who is that way. Like me and Tony, he's hopeful that I'll get better. It's not, I haven't given up hope. But I and I haven't asked him, but I feel like I know the visit where that turning point came. It was about a year into the illness where he had to search his soul 
or whatever, <laughs> whatever we Buddhists have, <laughs> he had to search his soul and decide, was he going to stick with me or not? And it's funny, because since then I got this little rash, and it turned out to be a, a little fungal thing. And he was so excited. This was two years ago. He took me into the door that said, authorized personnel only, and had me look through the microscope so I could see the, what makes a, vi- a fungus different from a bacterial thing. He was so excited I had something that he could treat with an over-the-counter thing, like, you know, right? But I feel that I got that point about a year, year and a half into the illness where I felt that he was searching his heart to see whether he could, would stick with me. And he has stuck with me. And it has made such a difference. He's open to treatment ideas that I bring to him. He's happy to... I mean, he'll do anything for me. And it's okay that after nine years, I haven't gotten better. And I think that some medical people aren't okay with that. So, I, yeah... I had to think about that for a while, but I think that's it. Thank you yeah. very much. Is there someone back there? Yeah. Okay. Um, I had a question for Tony, but I also had, I wanted to say something to what you just said, because when I, my eyes welled up with tears with your question. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my friends who's an OBGYN had just emailed me that she was so grateful for my CFS postings because in med school she was taught that people with CFS were psychiatric patients. Mm -hmm. And that was the general story that was being told. And so I'm so grateful when I hear people who have some power in that community to, to teach something different. And I loved what Tony said. And similarly, I would say that um, I think, like before, when I had, I went to a bit of remission for a while, and I'm a marriage family therapist, and one of the greatest things a mentor of mine said to me is one of the, the biggest dangers of being a, a health service professional is when you get to that point where you can't make it better, we often fall into blaming the patient or the client. And there are a couple doctors I describe in here who fall into that category. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think it falls in line with that, just being able to have that humility to say, hey, we've hit that place, I'm out of my scope of competence, and yeah. the research isn't there. Yeah. My question for oh. you was um, like you, I'm a horrible reader, and I don't trust my memory at all, but I think you said somewhere in your book something about going through an antiviral treatment. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could speak a little sure, bit to I will. that. I also want to say that if any of you feel that you want to leave, I, that's fine with me. Um, if you've been here since early morning and it's, you know, that's fine. Don't feel that. Um, I was uh, on an antiviral through an infectious disease doctor at Stanford um, uh, called Valcite. It's a very toxic antiviral, and they were hoping to target this 
HHV6, this childhood roseola. And um, I did experience initial improvement on it, uh, but it reversed. And I uh, ended up sicker than before I started it, and my, my titers for that virus went through the roof. And no one understands what happened. I had... I, I tested positive for the virus and then I took the antiviral and I seemed to get better and then the titers went way up and I got worse and they finally said, well, just stop taking it. So that was my experience. <laughs> mysterious, mysterious. Yeah, there was... So um, Penny here wanted me to say something, so I guess I'll say something. I'm a physician, and I have chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm-hmm. So I'm both on the side of, like, you know, being on the side of having had it, having, still having the illness, and on the other side of having not treated people with CFS, but rather being a physician. And my specialty was internal medicine and geriatrics. So the lady in the front had a question about physicians and how they feel when they can't treat a patient further. And I think for me, what helped me personally was as a geriatrician, I had a lot of patients whom I couldn't make better. You know, I had a lot of patients that were in hospice or in palliative care. And one thing my, my professors had taught me and that I, later on I found useful for myself as a physician, even now, is when you can't offer people like hope for to get their whole life back you know, pre-illness or when you can't, you know they're going to pass away and there's nothing you can do to really prevent that is you think about hope in different ways. So it may not be hope mm-hmm. for recovery, but you can hope to, get, to help their pain you know, yeah. improve or help them sleep better. And even those little steps can make a big difference for someone. So for the lady who asked about what to ask, what to tell nurses and doctors in training or even out of training, that would be one thing I would think about. That's, yeah, that's actually what my doctor has been concentrating on, sleep and you know, that kind of thing. Just improving quality of life. Yeah. Is it okay if we go on for a bit? Or? Martha? Uh, okay, I just, like I said, I don't want people to feel they need to stay, but I'm all right. So. Thank you very much I'm on for adrenaline. <laughs> um, one of the problems that we, with uh, chronic fatigue, is, is the limitations in terms of what we can and cannot do, as you uh-huh. know. Um, we can't travel like we used to, and the fun things to do. Uh, for example, I dropped my wife off to the airport today for her to go to Angkor Wat in Vietnam, and I can't go. What? Oh. I'm sorry. He was saying that. Um... What, what, what have you uh, been able to uh, do for fun? Things, oh. um, things, things okay. in which uh, yeah. you can say that you, enjoyment in life okay. and to overcome... Just sitting around okay. doing nothing. Uh, he was saying that, um, talking about the restrictions and how he just dropped his wife off at the airport to go to Vietnam and Angkor Wat, and, and he can't go. I know that very well. Tony uh, was in New York City over the summer because uh, I wanted him to go. We have an old, dear friend there. Um, it's hard. I, I rarely leave Davis I came here and I went to Spirit Rock. Um, So what I've done is to make a life for myself in my bedroom. And 
with, with the help of a musicologist named Robert um, Greenberg, who uh, has DVDs that he does for the teaching company. And I don't know if this was originally Tony's idea, but I like to say, just to tell you how far I've come, that before I got sick, if I heard something on NPR's classical station, I wouldn't have known if it was Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert. And now, even if I don't know the piece, more often than not, I can identify the composer in, the, in that period, I have to say. So from the bed, I have come to uh, appreciate um, classical music and now opera. I watch, I, I spent most of my life in aversion, <laughs> in a state of aversion toward opera. I thought it was sentimental slop and too much Brunhilde. And, and I have to say, I'm not into Wagner yet. But <laughs> Mozart, Verdi, and the bel canto composers, Donizetti and Bellini, I have learned to love their operas again through these teaching company DVDs and also with the help of a professional opera critic who happens to be a friend of a friend and he's in New York and he's kind enough to answer my questions. Um, And this is one reason this brings me joy is that the newest thing in opera are the DVDs and they're from opera houses all over the world. So I feel in my own way I've been to La Scala and La Fenice and you know. So um, there's that. <laughs> That's what I do for joy. I wanted to share an image about uh, depression because someone asked about it. Mm-hmm. And um, if, it's, if you envision uh, that our emotions go up and down all day long, we're up, we're down, we're up, we're down, and you envision it as a 300-story building, and when you're up, the windows are clear and you're feeling great and everything looks good. And then as you come down, the windows get a little dirtier, it gets a little darker, and then sometimes you're down in the basement, and when you're in the basement, it's very dark and you can't see, and you're, and you've, you're on this, you can be on this elevator up and down, and that happens. I get the impression that when you're in the basement, and you've gotten off the elevator, and you're setting up the furniture, and you're hanging out down there, and it stays for a a good period of time, that that's a description of depression. And that if you'd wait a moment, maybe get back on the elevator and only come up one floor, it's a little better, and then later on, you get better. Yeah, thank you. I think that uh, we should stop. So... Well, my son's friends are here, even though he isn't. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to go out in that area in in case you want to see me. I'd like to thank you so very much. Thank you, Mark. Okay.